There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Welcome to No Mere Mortals Cover to Cover series. The Cover to Cover series is a chronological journey through the moments in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation centered on the main character of Jesus Christ. In 2020, the Lord directed the start of the Cover to Cover series that originally began as weekly installments for Sunday morning youth teachings at a local church. In 2023, the Cover to Cover series will move to being a podcast series and Lord willing will continue to be weekly installments. God, we thank you for this time this morning. And Lord, just as, as silly as trying to guess drawn images on a whiteboard can be, uh, would that also actually just be what kind of preps our mind this morning as we go through uh, just, just the amazing imagery that you lay for us in these next few chapters. So God, though the, the feel might be different, the pace might be different, God, I just pray that you wouldn't allow anything from distracting us from just receiving from you just who you are and enjoy being in your presence this morning. Yes, that's name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So again, as we were making our way through, uh, we, we're going to try and cover quite a bit of scripture today. But don't worry, I'm not actually going to go and try and read through every single one of those verses. It would just not be possible. So, but I want to give you guys just real quick uh, in chapter 24 where we ended, verses 15 uh, through the end. It says, "So then Moses went up into the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain." Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he, Yahweh, called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. It's where we ended. So again, the image here is they have come to Mount Sinai. God spoke to them the Ten Commandments. Then Moses gives them the reading of the Book of the Covenant. Then what we had read about, God had told Moses to do on this very mountain in Exodus chapter 3. They have the sacrifice that they're supposed to. After that sacrifice, the people at the base of the mountain, they're looking up, and God has called Moses up onto the mountain. And Moses is going up with Joshua, and him and Joshua are on the mountain, and it says that again, that fire is on on the top of the mountain. It it is the burning bush, now the burning mountain, and God calls Moses up into the midst of that burning flame, that smoke, and as God's speaking to him, it's 40 days and 40 nights. We're now about to go through, in these six chapters, what him and God were talking about for those 40 days and 40 nights. And so, uh, as we go into that, what we're looking at today, and I just want to kind of set this scene, is we're going to be looking at the tabernacle, the furniture and items around the tabernacle, uh, the clothes of the priest, the means of the entrance into the presence and the service of Yahweh. But this is, if I, with all the stuff we're going to go through, I just want to set your guys' mind as we go through describing all these things and looking at these things. Do not get your mind stuck on the form of the items. What we're looking at is the function that is the communication. And when you, when you look at architecture, people will always say, you know, the difference between form and function. The form is going to illustrate to us what exactly is kind of the imagery being discussed to us, but don't miss the function of these items that we're going through. So with that, uh, look at Exodus chapter 25, right there in verse one, it says, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering, and this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ramskin dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and the stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. I'm going to read those two verses again, even though we started this morning with that. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of, its furnish, of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So again, as we get ready to go through this, I can't stress this enough. To understand what's happening, Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai. God in the fire is speaking to him, but this is not just a verbal type of discussion. He is showing, he is giving Moses a visual representation of something. And the thing is, is all these items that we're about to go through, God is showing Moses something that he is then going to pattern and make these things that we're going to see. Hebrews chapter eight, verse five tells us, speaking of these priests who serve the copy of the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he, meaning God, said that you shall make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, if you move to uh, Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 22, you come to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of a co- a Covenant is essentially a box. It was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. It was about three feet Uh, nine inches long. It was about two feet, three inches wide. And it was about two feet, three inches high. And then there was a lid that was placed on top of that. The lid to the ark, uh, many times referred to as, uh, they'll call it the mercy seat. It it really is just the word for atonement. And in the Old Testament, what that really means is just cover. Literally, that word should just be translated cover or lid. So you have the box and the lid. That is what the ark of the covenant is. And on top of Uh, this entire box inside and out the lid is it was to be overlaid with gold and sitting on top of it, as it was nicely drawn earlier, is two cherubim facing each other. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. So by the time we get to the end of this, we're going to see that God's going to give Moses by his hand two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments and that's what's going to go in the ark of the covenant. Now, something that, again, so that's what it is. Let me make very clear to you what the ark is not. The ark does not contain God. The ark was not a God box. God was not inside of the ark. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, as Solomon built the temple, referring to the temple, he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. So this was not in any way, in any Israelite thinking, a box that contained God. And in fact, as you continue through Exodus 25, verse 22, it says, and there, God speaking, I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in the commandment to the children of Israel. So again, I I want you guys to hear language that's already coming up. Remember, don't miss the function. 
all of this was God saying, I, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to I have a place where we can connect. And he starts off telling him about this ark that's going to be this place where he says, I'm not in the box. This world can't contain me. But it is this place that I'm choosing that I will come and I will meet with you and I will speak with you. Verses uh, 23 through 30 of chapter 25, it says, And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. And so as he has this, this showbread, and as you have this here, um, there's, there's, again, function. Something that, this is a moment where people will throw out to you, well, this is something you'll see in very, uh, various pagan cultures and religions where they would bring like a food type thing to appease their God. Or, but really you have to, don't, don't allow internet theology to push you guys into a wrong direction. Because in all of those, what you'll see is there's this idea that they needed to bring food because their God needed to be sustained. In fact, it was something that they had to do every day. This bread's only going to be changed out once a week. And in fact, what we find out when you go to the book of Leviticus about this table with the bread on it, it says in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 9, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat in a holy place, for it is the most holy to him for the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. So the table of bread was not, though the imagery in other religions has been taken, this is a moment where God goes, I don't, I can't be contained in the earth. The box doesn't contain me. The bread, I'm not asking you for bread because I get hungry and need a snack. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's God the provider saying, hey, I want this table of bread in there. And here's the thing, for you, Aaron, for you and your sons as a priest, when you guys are in this place, that's for you. So what, what is in here right now is this is God again. In the presence of Yahweh, God is inviting them to eat. Again, I want you guys to understand this, the connection when we think of sharing a meal with them. God's going, I don't need this bread. I don't need to be sustained by something like food. No, no, no. I just want to spend time with you guys. I don't want this to be a wham, bam, religious thing. Have some bread. Eat, take your time. And in fact, once again, it is God, Yahweh, being provider, not needing to be provided for. Matthew chapter four, verse four, uh, when Jesus is being tempted out in the wilderness, he actually quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter eight, verse three, and he says this, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So again, as God is inviting them there, all of this imagery and language is because God's saying, look, I want you to, it, it's, if you guys have ever been in a relationship or, or there's that person that you, you want to spend more time with and you just want to be around them and it's like you hang on every word, it doesn't matter what they're talking about, it's just them talking with you. The fact that they're talking with you, you're like, you're talking with me, that's cool. God is saying, I want that with us. I don't want this to be a thing where you're like, hey, what's up, God? Uh, yeah, I did my little thing. You good? Okay, there's the bread for you. No, he's saying, no, sit down and enjoy the bread. Hang on every word. Again, don't miss the function that this is all of God desiring to have a relationship with his people. Exodus chapter 25, verse 31 through 40, we come to the lampstand. Now, the lampstand, unlike other things, wasn't an item that was laid with gold. In fact, it was hammered out of pure gold. And, it, and, and the truth is, we have no specific dimensions given, um, but it is thought mostly to be patterned after the modern-day menorah. It had uh, one middle shaft with these kind of branches coming out on each side for a total, as we're told in here, of, of seven lamps. 
Now, another imagery you're going to see as you read through that second is there's this repetition of almond blossoms. There was this motif uh, was important because it, it was the first tree to really spring in Israel in springtime. It reminded everybody when they looked at this menorah, when they looked at this lampstand and they saw the almond blossoms, it, it brought about, the, 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 again, the freshness of new life and, and the nature of God's ongoing work. All of this thing, and you're going to see this imagery continue to build, and the lampstand really starts to get us there, is, is, is this is uh, Edenic imagery. This, this is God taking us back to Eden. This is not the first time this has happened. God is taking us back to the intersect. God is taking us back to the place he's saying, this was the place where, where me and men, me and mankind, we were in a great relationship, and we just enjoyed being with each other, and we walked with each other, we talked with each other, and so he's going to continually use illustrations to point us to the function of just being in relationship with him. Now, this is also a moment, again, I want to dispel some internet theology out there, because there's this idea that starts taking is going, oh, well, really, this is just derivative of uh, you know, the, the pagan idea of the, the tree of life, the world tree. And it's sad because you're going, you're so close. You're so close, but you miss off. Begin, we're talking about this Eden imagery. Yes, the almond blossoms, it is a tree, but it should be taking you back to the tree of life. And I just want to point this out because I've made this comment before and it just... When you have something that's counterfeit, when you see a counterfeit out there, let's take something like, and I don't even go aggressive or, or, or ill-natured. If you guys have played Monopoly, you've played with money that's pink and yellow, and there's other nations that have much prettier money than us, but we understand that when you're playing with that, it's not real money, it's a counterfeit. But you play with it, and that counterfeit points to the reality of a type of currency that we use. And the more of a counterfeit you see, the greater the knowledge is that there is a truth out there. So when these other religions, they, they, they'll, they'll have this imagery and you're going to see that. You're going to see this imagery from all this. And I don't want this to be some, some people come, well, you know, Mesopotamia, and they'll throw out all this imagery. And, and I don't know why this happens to believers, but they're like, wait, we, we share imagery? Of course we do. Because they are counterfeit to the truth. Go back to when we looked at the plagues and all that God was doing. It's that God is wanting to dispel. There is this imagery out there that belongs solely to Yahweh that these fallen angels who desire themselves to be gods have taken for themselves. Again, as we're seeing this out of Hebrews, what was this entire scene replicating or a shadow of? Of God's heavenly realm. Yahweh was not the only one, is not the only one who has ever been there. Remember that there were angels who were cast out with an image of what the heavenly realm is, what the throne room looks like. And as they come to earth to establish themselves as these gods, they take that imagery and they'll communicate it to men and it becomes this counterfeit that ripples throughout. But again, all of that continues to do is point to the fact that there is a realm. There is a throne. What Yahweh is making clear here and what your word tells you that you go through is there is only one God there's only one creator who sits on that throne. Verse 40, again, says, and see that you make it according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Again, when we look at these seven lamps in the tabernacle, and this is where you're going to go from Genesis to Revelation, is that it's, it's representing, again, God's, God's throne. As we see even in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, when it describes these seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits, seven spirits, of God. Then the seven lamps 
represent the presence of the Holy Spirit in heaven. As you move to Exodus chapter 26, verses 1 through 37, this is where we get into the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a tent with a frame and a series of elaborate coverings. First one of Exodus chapter 26 says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue and purple and scarlet thread and artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. Now, we'll get into the imagery for just a second, but I, I, I want to bring us back to where we started in chapter 25. Because as God has been pointing us to this function of being in a place where we have an intimate relationship with him. God's forework of bringing people into new life. But where did this whole interaction start with? A free will offering. It was a choice, a free will choice to enter into this. God's done all the work. Man is not earning this position. God has gone through all of that, but he starts it off with the free will work. But I guess I want you guys to catch something else because maybe you missed this. You might have wondered a little bit about, remember when they were leaving Egypt and they kind of turned to all their Egyptian counterparts and they said, hey, you guys got any money or like fine clothes? And they were like, we're so tired of all these plagues. And they started throwing money and things at them say, here, take all these things and get out of here. All of those items bestowed onto them provided them the means by which God was going to make the tabernacle. So all of that, even those blessings to remind them, it, it wasn't for your own personal. It was all for his glory, but yet it was still a choice they have to make. God didn't give it to them and then rip it out of their hands. He provided and then say, but I provided that as a means by which you and I we can fellowship and interact. So every blessing, I just want you guys to have, as God bestows on you guys in your life blessings, and he's gonna do that, is to go, when it says where it's for his glory, that his glory is an intimate relationship with you. Let's continue on. Looking at the tabernacle. Again, the designs as was described here on the coverings, they were visible only from the inside. So as you guys start to read through that, you'll see that these, these cherubim designs and these, these Eden designs, you could only see it from inside. But once inside of the tabernacle, you would see cherubim, these, these angel motifs all around, as you would see in heaven, that the tabernacle is just a shadow form echoing a function. You'll see this in passages like Psalm 80, verse 1, Isaiah 37, 16, and Ezekiel 10, 3. In verse 30, God says, And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you are shown on the mountain. Again, a copy of and a shadow of the heavenly things. Verse 31 says, You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it up upon the four pillars of acacia wood, overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasp. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there. Behind the veil, the veil shall be, div be a divider between the holy place and the most holy place. So again, let's not get lost in the function, but basically the Holy of Holies was a tent, a small space inside of the bigger tent, the tabernacle. And inside this Holy of Holies was where you had that Ark of the Covenant, that meeting place of Yahweh. And there was a veil in between there. This is then going to be taken further into the temple. And this is important for you guys. So the veil was the dividing place between people who came into the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. And the only one who was allowed in the Holy of Holies was Moses, Joshua, high priest. 
and they would go, and that's where they would meet with God. But something amazing happens on the day of crucifixion. If you guys remember, when Jesus hung on that cross and he yelled out those final words, it is finished. The temple, the permanent structure of what is this tabernacle, that veil between the holies of holies and the entrance by which from top to bottom, not from the bottom otherwise, from top to bottom, the moment he yelled out those words, the veil rips in two. Now don't think of like a little like lacy veil that women have like when they get married. This thing was like inches thick. Again, when you go through, you'll start seeing it. And what God says is the moment that Christ died, that veil, your entrance to the Holy of Holies opened wide by Jesus Christ, our high priest, who was the forerunner, giving you now direct access to the very presence of God. Verse 34, you shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set up the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. Uh, chapter 27, verses one through eight, again, reminding us what all of this is, starting with the altar. It says that it is to be shown as it was shown on the mountain, though they shall make it. So I just, I, I don't want this to get lost, is that what you go through when you go through these chapters is it is Moses seeing God's realm. God is showing it to him and what Moses is making for us to see. What God is having him build, it is an echo of God's heavenly realm, but not of the physical structure. Again, I want to remind you guys this. Why do you have eyes? Because you are an echo of your creator who sees. That doesn't mean God has eyes. It means he has the function to see. Why do you have ears? Because God hears. Why do you have a mouth? Because you're an echo of your creator who speaks and just in that same way, God is a spirit and should be worshiped in such. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have ears. He doesn't have a mouth anatomically as we think of them. But it is the way by which he can anthropomorphize and to push to us an understanding of his function. The same thing is happening here with the tabernacle. As Moses is seeing the realm before him, this spiritual realm, it is being put into a form of anthropomorphic relation to us for us to understand. So don't get lost in the form. The form is just taking us to a place. It's taking us to Eden. It's taking us to that intersect, that place where man and God walked in harmony. And so all of this serves as a function. And the form is just illustrating that. The altar was a box-like structure. And because of its overlay with bronze, it could survive high temperatures. Now something else you'll notice as you go through these chapters is that as you start with the Ark of the Covenant, and very interesting, again, I love the literal structure here, literary structure, is because as, if you think about this, as we would approach God, we would be coming from the outside in. But I love the literary structure here because as God is describing his relation to us, he's starting from inside and moving out. The very way in each one of our lives, too many of us will get stuck on trying to change our outside things. And God goes, no, 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 see, I start at the inside and it works its way out. But just again, is, is, a, is a, a note to make is that when you start at the inside in the holies of holies, it is overlaid with gold, 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 and gold. 
you start to move yourself out, the metal starts to become silver, and then you get further out and you get to bronze. It's a degra- uh, degradation, basically showing of a, of a higher superiority as you get closer in. But as a practicalness, because God is that God who is wise and awesome like that, that bronze handles heat better than the gold. And so as the altar that would be the burning place of sacrifice, the bronze could handle high, high temperatures of heat. And so that's what it was overlaid with. This altar that they would make their sacrifices on was overlaid with bronze. Now again, the idea behind the Hebrew word for altar is essentially what altar means. Again, we, we, we in church and we, the Christianese, we, we get used to saying these things, but the word in Hebrew literally means killing place. That's what the altar, that's what that word means. It was a place of death and sacrifice, where atonement for sin was made and consecration to God was marked. Now for us, our altar, our killing place is the cross, where Jesus died for our sins and we followed by dying into self and living for Jesus. We lay down our lives at the altar of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in chapter 6, verse 14, it says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Exodus chapter 27, verses 9 through 19, is speaking of the court of the tabernacle. And it goes into, uh, in verse 19, it speaks of all the utensils of the tabernacle for all its services and it, all its pegs and all its pegs of the court shall be bronze. Now, this is gonna help you guys out with imagery later. Bronze, as we talked about, the killing place. Bronze metal is always a sign of judgment. Bronze represents judgment. Hold on to that for when we get to a serpent on a bronze pole. Bronze always means judgment. All right. Exodus chapter 27, verses 20 through 21. And you shall command the children of Israel. This is speaking of uh, the care of the lampstand. The command of the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil, pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from until morning from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to the generation on behalf of the children of Israel. So oil throughout scripture is uniformly a, uh, a, an illustration or a symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. And that here it is, the true value and meaning of the sacred oil that we, the elect light bearers of the world, are only able to fulfill their function by the Holy Spirit. And today, more than ever, in these dark days, there is more reason for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit for the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says, Once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now in Exodus chapter 28, and we're going to actually just look at like one verse and summarize all of Exodus chapter 28. It's speaking of the priest and actually the garments of the priest. Again, great drawing earlier, but it says this in Exodus chapter 28, verse 43. 
They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. Again, don't miss the function, but here's the illustration. The holy of holies, God's presence. It is like the sun so many times illustrated. And God is saying, you cannot, with your human eyes, just stare up at the sun. Again, unless you're like a for- former president who wanted to show off his manliness and stare directly at the sun, the rest of us were given instructions of, hey, here are things that you can put on so you can stare at the sun and not have your eyes melt. Much more than trying to approach that presence, approach the sun. We have all means of technology that we use to, to not be bombarded by these things. And what God is saying is going, you, I want you in my presence. I, I want you guys to catch this. This is not a God who is saying, stay out. I am most holy. I am good. And you guys are disgusting and gross and I want nothing to do with you. No, it's quite the opposite. God is going, no, I am good and I am holy and around me is holy and the presence is holy. And I want you to come near but if you come traipsing in however you want, it's like looking up at the sun without anything. You're going to burn up and God's saying, I don't want that for you. I want this relationship, but there's a means that is safe for you. Because he is so holy, because he is so magnificent, there's a means by which we can interact with him and he's made that possible. And that's what these priests were letting us know about their attire. Verse uh, 20, or chapter 29, uh, verse 44, speaking of this this ceremony of how these priests were consecrated. Verse 44, so I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting. I'm gonna back up here again because I know we're moving quick. But in this chapter, I want you to hear who was the one who was doing the work of consecration. Consecrating. I'm messing that word up bad. To, To consecrate. It still sounds weird. Anyways, the one who's making it able that they can be around each other. How about that one? It is not the priests who do a bunch of good things and they earn entrance into God's presence. I want you to hear when God is saying, okay, I've told you the means, but the one by which who is doing the consecrating, consecration. I'm going to keep going because we're going to get stuck there. Verse 44 of chapter 29. So I will cons- yep, consecrate the temple of the meeting and the altar. I, I'm going to have to keep saying this word, consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. Olivia, do you mind kicking that door for me? Or Amber? I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Again, this whole process that God is going through. And this means it's because of the fact that he desires a relationship with his people. This is not a God who spun the world and is afar off, but has always been saying, I want to get us back to Eden. I want to walk with you in the cool of the day. I want to talk with you. I want you to hang on every word like like we're in an actual relationship that you're not just punching a card in and and doing your, but spending time with him. And in all of this, he's saying, I will do the work. He's saying, I will take upon myself. I have made the means possible, but I will do the work to make it possible for you to be in my presence so I can dwell with you, that you would know that I am your God. Chapter 30, 
uh, looking at the altar of incense, verses 1 through 10. Uh, the altar of incense was also carried by the same system of rings and poles, just like the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, and the bronze uh, altar with its gate. It was the holy place of the tabernacle together with the golden lampstand and the table of showbread. So the table of showbread represented communion with God. The lampstand spoke of the testimony to the world. Now the golden altar speaks of an offering of adoration. Incense is always a picture of prayer and the sweetness of its smell, the way it ascends to heaven. And in fact, if you guys go throughout most of these sacrifices, very interesting when you go through the process and you look at it, it's again, this is the, the difference. You will see similar things in other religions, but here's one of the main differences on how the ancient Israelite thought about this. Whatever was offered to God was not prepared in the same way for humans to eat. God said, hey, you're going to take part of this, and I want you guys to boil it. I want you to make it a good meal, spice it up, and, and I want you to eat it. When it came to what was given to God, he says, just burn it all up. You would turn it to vapor. You would turn it into, into the, these, these particles that drifted off as into to nothing. Again, it was a God who was not in, can be contained by this world. And so the, the, the incense was, again, this, this idea of the prayers being offered up to him. And it sins, again, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, it speaks of the golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And again, the ministry of the altar of incense speaks of how God's people should continually come to him in prayer. But verse 9 says this very interesting thing. It says, you shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. He's saying this, this serves a specific purpose. And James, God says, the reason you don't have is because you're not asking me. And when you ask, you ask selfishly. You ask for your own personal gain. Where do wars and where does all violence come from? It comes from human selfishness. And so here, God's saying, this table, that this, this, this image of prayer to me, it's not to be used for ordinary things. This is something unique and special as a communication of your adoration to him. Now, I'm going to move quickly through uh, verses 11 through 16 of chapter 30. It talks about this ransom money, and I don't want to go too much into it because it seems a little weird. But in verse 15, it seems, could seem misplaced. It says, The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord uh, to make atonement for yourselves. So it seems weird, but placed right towards the end of this, as God is communicating again this connection in this relationship with him, he's saying, There's no partiality. Rich or poor. Among God's children, there should be no partiality because somebody has more money than the other. That we are not to be a people who go, well, you look like you've uh, got some money. I want to hang out with you. Ah, you look like you can even buy a taco. See you later. God says that should not exist in his body because we are his echoes, his image bearers, and he shows no partiality. And in this place of atonement, God is saying, I don't look at people based on outside Factors like humans do. That this is an atonement offered to all. Now looking at again uh, the, the different utensils in, chapters, uh, in chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. It's talking about the different items. It says, when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to, the burnt, uh, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. Again, God's saying, look, there's a process and there's a means. If you try and come in just however you want, you're the ones who will die, and he does not want that. 
Going into verses 22 through 33, speaking of the anointing oil, it says it should not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to the composition. It is holy and shall be holy to you. Whenever compounds any like, or whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So God's saying there's this, there's this oil, again, that oil that was supposed to be used for lanting the, 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 the lamp. And he said, there's a special oil here, but it smelled good. And God's saying, no, 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 no. This is not cologne. This is not perfume for you to make yourself smell all nice. Like, no, this, was, this is something holy and sacred. This is the means by which we communicate. This is God saying, don't take something that is special in our relationship and make it ordinary. Again, think about how you interact with, the, with someone you like. Again, if you were with someone who you really cared about and they looked at another person and, and called them honey or, you know, I, I, just myself, I call my wife gorgeous. I, I don't know. I, I, that's what I call her. If I was to call another woman by that title, one, I'd get slapped upside to nowhere. But it would be taking something, something that's so intimate in the relationship and, and if I just start throwing around it, wait that you're making something that's so special in the relationship and making it ordinary and here again God is saying that is not to be between us don't take something that is special or again maybe another image would be if you were to like it, you know and there are guys who do this so weird and gross handing out wedding rings or rings of relationship like it's just candy what, 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 no that's this, this, in, intimate imagery I'm just throwing around rings willy-nilly this is what this imagery is here for in ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 and 30 it says let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption verses 34 to 38 it's speaking again of the incense and it, again much much of it is the same thing. It, it's don't, don't, just, don't just use this stuff for however you want because God's saying, this is the place that I meet with you. This is where I hear you. Don't be trying to make your house smell nice with the incense that's supposed to be an image of, of our communication. As we get to chapter 31, whew, we're gonna do it, guys. I know. Verses one through 11 are speaking of the, the, the people that God is actually going to now use. So he, there's a practicalness to here that God is going to instill skilled workers to be able to create all of these things. And I love what it says. It says, see, I have called by name uh, Bezalel and I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. And again, there's, when it comes to all of the utensils, when it comes to the garments for ministry, all of these things that God's saying, I've given these men skill to make this stuff. What I love about this, I, I've got time. What I love about this, this is one of these great moments, and this is no knock against those who, who want to be lawyers or doctors and pursue that educational path. What I love about this is this is for every handyman, every man who is good at crafting, everyone that God has skilled with their hands, who for some reason likes to make it of no value. I have a father-in-law who can build houses that are magnificent, amazing for him, but he always, he always downplays his skill like it's nothing. And whenever I see my father-in-law and he'll take, in fact, when they bought their new property, they, there's this like almost shack looking of a building that was on the property. And as they were looking at the property, my father-in-law saw it and I saw his eyes light up as all the things started 
turning through his head what he could do with it. And the guy looked at my father-in-law and says, oh, this, this, this structure is of, of no value. That's why it's not included in the, in the property. And it was, I just sit there knowing I could see the wheel spinning in my father's. I go, to you, it has no value. But I hope you get to come back later when it gets into his hands and see what he does with that. And it's this amazing uh, cabin of a, of a building that now sits on their property. And it's this beautiful thing. And just, again, that God takes men like this and says, I've given you skill filled with his spirit, with knowledge for doing these works. So again, for anyone who's in that place, don't demean yourself because when it comes to building of the tabernacle, God goes, this guy, he's, he's like one of the priests. I filled him with my spirit and I've got a work for him to do. Now we're going to finish up. Exodus 31, 12 through 18, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak also to the children of Israel. Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath there. Therefore, it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it, again, makes it ordinary, shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, and the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout the generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seven days he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking to him on Mount Sinai, he, God, gave Moses two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. He has called them up onto this mountain. And guys, this is purposeful. This whole section, and where does it wrap up? What, what language is God giving to us in its literary structure to take us back to? The garden, creation, the intersect of God's world and ours, where he walked with man in the cool of day and talked with him. And literally, guys, now we went through pretty quickly. But for those who, 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 who like writing, who like stories, who like poems, who like literary structure, guys, these six chapters are literally a connection between the creation of the tabernacle, which we went through, and the creation of the world in Genesis 1 through 2. In fact, one such guy by the name of Peter Kearney, who really likes to look at this stuff, made the parallel, who shows that the tabernacle, at this, what we just read through, as it's been constructed, uh, there are seven markings of God's announcement. Seven times in this section, it will say, God spoke to Moses. The seventh of these sections is the command to observe the Sabbath and Exodus, which we just finished here in chapter 31. As the seven days of creation of God spoke, all of this, it's about the function, not the form. The form is declaring the function that from Genesis to Revelation, Yeshua, Jesus, is Yahweh, creator, provider, and savior. This is why in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word in John chapter 1, 14 is he tabernacled with us. All of this was pointing, God is saying, this is, this is our connecting place. This is the intersecting place. And Jesus was the perfect intersect of God's realm and ours. He was beheld in his glory. The glory is the only begotten, full of, uh, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
But guys, something else amazing happens for us. For each and every one of you who have placed your faith in Christ, 2 Corinthians says this in chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, and this is where we're going to end. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, your body is referred to as a tent in Scripture, this tabernacle that Jesus put on, the tabernacle that is the intersect, for every single one of you who place your faith in Christ, you, you become the intersect to this world. You are the intersect that Christ was the perfecter of, that he is, you are now the place where God's world and this world can meet. That is your function. That is your purpose. And it says, if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our inhabitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that morality should be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time. Lord, I just pray that that anyone under the sound of my voice, if they have not come to that place where they place their faith in you, Lord, that you would meet them right here, right now. Because, Lord, through all these six chapters that we rapidly made our way through, the thing that you repeatedly kept saying is your desire to dwell with your people, to be with your people, to make a way by which you can spend eternity with them. And God, you have done all that work through your son, Jesus Christ, who was the full expression of your tabernacle that we just read. And Lord, that you have made us to be the same for the world around us. Fill us with your spirit. Make us more like your son. Make us more like Jesus so that the world around us can know you and see you. In your son's name, amen. The Cover to Cover series is part of No Mere Mortal. The No Mere Mortal ethos derived from the biblically grounded and inspired work of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. You can find more No Mere Mortal content, including the Cover to Cover series, on our website at nomeremortal.org. Follow us on Twitter, Truth, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, and most major podcasting services. Subscribe, follow, like, comment, leave a review, and share. The music you've heard has been provided by Sicko. That's C-I-K-K-0. And you can find him at YouTube at Sicko's Beat Suck 797. My name is Bryce, and you are no mere mortal. <laughs>